X-Ray. From Portland, Oregon, it's the Beervana Show. Broadcast on X-Ray FM and available anywhere on your favorite podcast service. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. How are things over in your neighborhood? Well, they're gray, uh, and it's January, so all that checks out. Uh, that's just to say that we are safely socially distant. We are joining each other through the miracle of the intertubes. By the way, did you like my new introduction there? I did. You, 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 uh, you're always trying to mix it up. You, you never like to do the same script twice. I give you something for that. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you. I'll take something. Uh, uh, how, how are you feeling these days? No COVID, I hope. Yeah, we're COVID free here in the house and um, we're pretty good. I, like we're, we, we have very few vectors for exposure. So we're, we're feeling good about that. You are... You have yeah. more members in the family, so you probably have a slightly Yeah, but just, just three of us right now, and, and, and we're kind of hunkered down. So it's true that we don't actually have that many exposures. I mentioned in the last pod that I'm sort of doing this curbside pickup from the grocery store even. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we make little runs to the grocery store and other places. But, yeah, I mean, we're kind of hunkered, <laughs> I guess. I, w- I, went out, I went out for a run this morning. Uh, so I'm feeling kind of jaunty because I got all those endorphins pumping. Nice. I'm also also feeling super old because my hips hurt and my knees hurt. And, but I go out now with a, uh, I, you know, I'm so used to it now that I just wear a mask. Even when I'm kind of running around and there's not many people around, I just, it's just habit now. So I just wear mm-hmm. my mask and I run around and, um, you know, in the winter it's not so bad because it's cold and having a mask over your face isn't terrible. And Yeah. You know, I, I have a, I have a mask in all my pockets of all the different coats I wear. Uh, I have a raincoat and I have a heavy coat and I have a lighter coat. And every time I leave, I know I always have a mask cause I, I stash uh, masks in those pockets. I have, I have masks everywhere. Masks in my car, <laughs> masks in my pockets, masks. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then, and then inevitably the one time I forget somehow I can't find a mask. And, um, yeah. And you know, of course, what I did when I got home from my run, which is I grabbed my lemonade and I grab my beer. And so even though my hips and joints hurt, they hurt less because of the anti-inflammatory uh, effects of the hops, right? There, so, you, there yeah. you go. So yeah. I'm, so I'm doing good is the, is the, is the answer <laughs> to you. Uh, but it is dark and it's gray and it's cold and it's Portland, um, which is beer drinking weather. It is beer drinking weather. It is indeed. Uh, and I've been, I've been drinking some beer, I, I confess. It but is dry it, January, which I ignore. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I read a post, but I can't remember exactly uh, exactly the quote. It was something like, um, uh, I've decided that dry January has come at an inconvenient time or something like that. <laughs> so I've chosen to ignore it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I posted a thing a while back, early early in January, uh, 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 the, old, the old airplane quote i picked the wrong uh january to give up beer oh yeah maybe it was you maybe that's yeah. the exactly because oh. <laughs> <laughs> this but, has been uh this has been kind of a rock and roll january i don't know we are recording before anything uh before any any uh uh regime change will happen but um you know by the yeah, time this might, th- yeah, this th- might th- air after the 20th right so it, it uh, may not even air. I mean, the, the country is ruin. I, I mean, know. I was going to say, do we still have a country? Do we still have an <laughs> internet to see to hear this? Uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy times and not a time I think you should give up. <laughs> you should give up beer. Drink a lot yeah. of beer in January. There's always February, March, April. Just take your pick. Uh, That's true. 
yeah. But I, you know, I'm I drink in moderation, and so I feel no compulsion that I should have a dry anything. Um, I feel I feel that way too. I I think uh, it's it's actually a saner and healthier approach to just not drink a lot. Uh, you know, you you can in any given session don't drink a lot and have days where you're not drinking and just be sensible. Yeah. Cheers. But but if you like that. if if that's not how your lifestyle works, then dry January is probably a good thing too. Besides, dry January would not work if you have a beer podcast where you taste beer. That's right. Uh, <laughs> so we're not we're not we're not, we're not following dry, dry January. Uh, I should introduce you. You, my yes. friend, you, my friend, are Jeff Allworth. You are the author of several books. Uh, among those books are the Beer Bible, the Secrets of Master Brewers, and the Widmer Way. Indeed, and you are Patrick Emerson, a professor of economics at our Oregon State University. Go Beavs. Go Beavs. I just got, in fact, like minutes ago, I got the email to say that we're back remote for the spring. Uh, Oregon State's on quarters, so I'm currently teaching in the winter quarter, which ends in March. Then there's a spring break, and then the end, usually like the very last few days of March or the beginning of April is when spring term commences. So not much is going to change uh, at Oregon State, even though uh, vaccines are on the horizon. And I think that may, yeah, I think, I think it makes a lot of sense for universities. Yeah. It's a different calculation for K-12, but yeah, I mean, why would you, why would you send a bunch of people back to a university uh, in the middle yeah. of the pandemic? As we report this, my wife, a K-12 teacher, is yeah. in, the <laughs> is in the, her base, in the, our basement teaching, um, and she is itching to get back. She's one of those teachers that's ready to go the moment she can, she will. Um, you know, there's obviously a broad range of opinions about that, but Oregon has stated that K-12 teachers are going to be sort of first in line after like the most, after like frontline uh, healthcare workers and, and, and uh, senior care facility people and stuff. So uh, it could be, if there are vaccines to be had, it could be that she gets vaccinated in the next um, 10 days. It, you know, it makes a lot of sense. We would like to get the kids back in school. So. Yeah, I, I am completely 100% support that. I think that we're way underestimating the cost on that we're imposing on kids right now um and i understand the risks i understand all of it but uh from economics we know that early education is incredibly important and what's what's even um perhaps scarier is that uh, losses in education are really hard to recoup and so right. there's like human right. capital losses that that uh, aren't going to be recovered. And so the kind of losses we're seeing, and then there's all kinds of ancillary costs, which is like uh, uh, social and psychological costs and uh, the costs on families and providing meals and, and poor families. And what it's true is that, you know, my kids can, can get through this. And most people who, most kids from, you know, upper middle class and upper class households are, are going to be fine no matter what. It's the more vulnerable populations that suffer the worst. And, and and that's true in so many different categories, but that's true in education as well. So there's my Absolutely. little, that's, <laughs> I'm, I've now made a habit of having like an op-ed moment in all our, all our podcasts, but that's my op-ed moment. I think that it should be among the very uh, most important priorities to get schools open. I totally agree. And I, I, I agreed with your op-ed last week. At some point, you'll say something that's wrong and I'll correct you, but so far you've, you've been all right. <laughs> Dark beers suck. Yeah, now now yeah. we're gonna fight. <laughs> uh, okay, so um, we should probably uh, talk about what we're gonna talk about today, which Let's isn't all which which isn't all COVID uh, and responses. So you may recall a recent podcast extra 
in which Jeff and I sampled beer sent from New England. And these included a milkshake sour, the brewery described as a Berliner Weisse. But was it? Today, we're going to unpack one of the world's great beer styles, going into the history and classic brewing techniques, and see how these modern, fruity interpretations fit in. And I'm pretty excited because it's been a while before since we've done a deep dive into a style. So, But wait, before we get to that, we have to tell you all about the news. We recently learned some sad news. Portland Brewing, one of the original four founding breweries in Portland, announced February 5th would be its last day in operation. Around in 1986, the brewery got a boost by brewing Grant's beers for the local market early on, then found success with its flagship McTarnahan's Amber in 1991. Portland would eventually merge with Seattle's Pyramid and then go through a series of acquisitions leading to this decision by Rochester, New York-based parent company Fifco, F-I-F-C-O. Which I learned recently as a result of all of this, they pronounce Fifco. Oh, Fifco. Sorry. Not Fifco. I know. Well, it's it's spelled Fifco. So they must be, what are they, Latin American or something? Yeah, they're Costa Rican. Good call. Hey, so Fifco. (laughs) Makes all kinds of sense to me. Indeed. (laughs) Uh, You know, this is not unexpected, and, and they've kind of faded from relevance, and I've, you know, I'm kind of one of these people that goes to the store and like, oh, Portland, they're still brewing. <laughs> they still exist. But it is sad. I mean, this is this is one of the this is one of the I don't know the canonical the the original big breweries in Portland. Yeah, it is, and uh, you know, I I did some reporting on this after they closed and talked to some people at the brewery and um, kind of revisited the the brand and the and the brewery and um. You know, there's there were a lot of decisions that kind of led to this place. Um, none none of them were, you know, they they just were they just turned out to not pan out, right? Uh, and then one after another kind of led to this place. It is not representative of anything that's happening in the industry. It's not related to COVID. It's not related to anything. It's just right. one of those things that happens. Thirty five years, and uh, you know, it's a long time. And this marketplace, that's a long. I mean, that's something to be proud of. For example. Uh, that's a long time to exist in this in this very competitive marketplace. You know when your flagship is still an amber, uh, <laughs> right? right. <laughs> probably you've had a trouble sort of keeping up with the times, but that's not unique. I mean, all of these sort of old uh, I don't even know what we want to call these legacy. Can we call these legacy brewers now in port in the in U.S.? Yeah, that's what people are calling them. Yeah, 30, 30 years plus. That's that's enough in the U.S. And in England, it's got to be like 300 years, but right. <laughs> <laughs> but in Oregon, we can call, or in the United States, we can call it 30 years. So these legacy brewers, you know, they're just, it's tough. It's tough to, st- to stay relevant. It's tough to keep up with market trends. And it's tough to keep people's attention when they're always, their heads are being turned by the newest, latest. So. Yeah, and if you didn't see that blog post, I, I'll just mention that Fifco is not the villain here. Which you yeah. know, we we automatically assume, oh, foreign right. foreign-owned company must be the villain. Yeah. They really invested as much money as they could in this. Um, the company, it, weirdly, when it when they sold to Pyramid, did not sell the facility, and the lease was about to go up, so that was an issue. Right. They have a kind of aging uh, bottling line in an era when cans are a big deal, so they were going to have to invest a ton of money in it, uh, even though uh, the volumes had to continue to drop for five or six years and they just they just you know they ran the math and said it doesn't make sense to to 
invest a whole bunch of money in this brand. So it, it they're not a bad they're not the bad company, and in fact they treated the the uh, the workers really well. They gave them a nice severance package. Um, That's really the good people I talked, yeah, it's great. The people I talked to were like, uh, you know, I'm not panicked because this uh, I've got some weeks to figure out what my next step is. So yeah. um, it's just it just happens, you know. This is uh, every time you have a brewery uh, that gets old, the opportunities for a variety of reasons that'll go out of business just you know bloom and 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 increase all over the place. And it's why not not so many survive this long. So I anticipate losing Widmer. And we've yep. lost Portland and we've lost Bridgeport. Yep. And now all that's left is what? McMinimins? McMinimins, which last week you pointed out, uh, or in our last podcast, you pointed out that the Two. Tide House model is- Two podcasts kind of, ago. Oh, no, man. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, as it's becoming this kind of new thing, which, you know, I, I can't believe I never thought of it, but the original Tidehouse model in the entire country was McMinimins. They were the ones who, who really pioneered this. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're still kicking. And in fact, they were trailblazers. Now everybody else is following their model. It's sort of a modified Tidehouse model because it's not one big central brewery that's feeding all the, the breweries. Uh, they do have a bunch of little microbreweries in a lot of their pubs. Not, you know, maybe what? like a third of their pubs or a quarter of their pubs have breweries, but, but yeah. And we worried about their ability to survive COVID because a lot of their business model is draft and food. Yeah. All and they also do lodging as well in some places. And so we really worried about them and it looked for a while pretty dire, uh, but they seem to have pivoted and are, are sort of surviving. Yep. Yep. And uh, Not really surviving, surviving. So that's good news. Right. Yeah, it is. And, Let's let's hope they're with us because they're the last, they're the last of the old school, man. Yeah, I think they're the oldest brewery. I think Migmans with this closure and sort of the sale of, of Widmer, uh, they become the oldest resident uh, independent brewery in, in Oregon. So it will be interesting go. to see what happens with Widmer um, now that they're owned by Anheuser Busch. So it's not impossible to think that they might have a renaissance, but uh, it yeah, is, it is I'm, hard to I'm, see that. It is. I'm really worried about that brand. I think. Craft Brew Alliance, the, the collective of breweries that was Craft Brew Alliance will continue, but uh, whether Widmer survives as a brand for very long, uh, I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, all right. You're next. All right. In some personal news, I'd like to mention that I've managed to secure two new partners for the Birana blog, Freem Family Brewers from Hood River and Rubens Brews from Seattle. Woo! Way to go, Thank Jeff. You. And, Thank you. And, uh, way, to, way to secure two amazingly fantastic uh, breweries to to co-sponsor your blog. Well, thank you. And I, I mentioned this partly because, you know, it's a big deal to me, but uh, uh, well, I'll just read, keep reading the script and then kind of Sorry. mention, yeah, kind mention of what's going on. No, 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 it's fine. Uh, this continues an evolution, not just on my blog, but media in general as content producers experiment with new models for financial support. Um, and th it's one of these things. So if you're a reader of beer content, uh, you will know that over the last five years, there used to be a network of uh, regional, what, what were sometimes called brews papers, like the Northwest <laughs> Brewing Notes and Celebrator Beer News, uh, which covered the activities of local breweries, uh, as well as national magazines uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and newspapers nationally would also often devote uh, one writer to cover the local beer industry. Most of this is gone, and right. we're looking. If you write about beer, you're trying to figure out how to uh, 
you know, support yourself, have financial support. And last year during COVID, as a result of COVID, in our last podcast, we talked about these new models that come out of COVID. Uh, I began to think about what I could do to uh, have my blog be a a bigger part of my life as a writer and a a more central, play a more central role. And it, it occurred to me that if I partnered with breweries to do cool stuff, uh, we could both uh, support me as a writer and also do some really fun content that I think will increase the value of the blog. And so uh, I, I consider this a wonderful experiment and I do love Freem and Rubens uh, and I love that they were willing to try this. So with Freem, what we're going to do is uh, I'm working with the marketing director, uh, Michelle Humphrey, to work on a series of videos that she's producing, uh, which will be educational videos about beer styles. Mm-hmm. And we're also going to work with the brewers there uh, to create weird beer styles or beer styles that are not particularly uh, common. Like last week I had a tamave. So uh, that would be an example of a kind of obscure beer style that would be fun to uh, follow through the whole process yeah. of recipe design, brewing, and sales, and just see how how these things work, how you how you come up with a style and talk about the style. So that that seems really fun to me, and um, I, I was like, I'm looking forward to that. With Rubens, we're going. I, uh, they are sponsoring me to do uh, one article every other month on partners that they work with. So like. Uh, one of them that I'm definitely going to do is Skagit Valley Malt. Uh-huh. Yep. Uh, and it's called the Sight Glass Project because they have a, a podcast called Sight Glass. And we're going to coordinate. So I will do a blog on, for example, Skagit Valley Malt. And then they'll interview somebody from Skagit Valley Malt as well. So we can kind of have this resonance uh, with, with what they're doing and what I'm doing. And... Yeah. It's sure. really cool. You know, it's like it, I've been wanting to write about Sketch and Hollywood forever. And this is a, a kick in the pants for me to get up there and, and talk to some people and see what they're doing. So it, it supports exactly what I want to do already, uh, which is fantastic. And it puts content that they're interested in out there in the world. So I, I want to thank them so much for that and Freem as well for supporting me and, and doing fun stuff. You know, it's really the collaboration model that breweries have pioneered that I kind of glommed onto. Yeah, and two of our favorite breweries, and and listeners might <clears throat> be interested to know that we went up to Seattle and did a whole series of podcasts in Seattle about the Seattle beer scene, and we did one with uh, on Rubens and with um, uh, the Rubens good folks. That's podcast number fifty. So go look for that. Uh, fantastic people, great, uh, uh, great interview. Um, really nice time visiting with them, and then Indeed. we both. Yeah, and we've both independently visited uh, Freem, you, I imagine, probably more than once. Uh, but it's a fantastic place, fantastic people, uh, fantastic beer. So, um, yeah, good good job in picking great partners. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and, and they, they were picked, too. This was not a random thing. I didn't put out a call and take whoever came. I, I went to breweries that I really admire, and I want people to, you know, I want people to buy their beer. I want to support the, what they're doing. They're supporting what I'm doing. It does. It does remind me that we actually haven't done an actual podcast with, with uh, Freem. Partly, probably because they for a while were sponsoring our pod, so that sounds, that seems a little too, <laughs> too crass. But uh, we need to we need to do that once COVID's over. We should get out to Hood River and and, uh, and check out Freem. That would be cool. Uh, we there is we do have a little bit of uh, tape somewhere. Uh, I went to uh, 
beer fest in at uh, Firestone Walker. Right. And Josh Freem was there and I, I did interview him as a, a, a group of people I interviewed there. So if Josh Freem has actually appeared on this blog. That's right. I podcast, do know that. But, but God knows which number that is. Uh, you know, I know. Just listen to all of them and you'll you'll find it. So That's right. It's worth <laughs> Go through the whole catalog. <laughs> you definitely should do that. Especially the early ones. They're really good. Uh, <laughs> the audio is spectacular. Yes. Yes, indeed. Uh, all right. Uh, well, that's fantastic. Great news. And I'm excited for you uh, and excited for the uh, the sort of spillover benefit that um, I'll get from hearing all the great stuff that you do. And I imagine that we'll get some podcasts out of that as well. Yeah, I hope so. Uh, that, that could be another one of those nice intersections. So excellent. We will, well, we'll try to work that out. Why don't we uh, switch gears now and let's focus on uh, doing one of our famous, world-renowned deep dives into a beer style. Uh, but actually, all, in all seriousness, this is my favorite podcasts are always the ones in which we decide to really get deep into a particular beer style and dissect it and uh, get to drink it too. So, um, so let's go. So Jeff, Berliner Weisse. Uh, where in the world does it come from? <laughs> you know, let me guess. Is it is it is it Netherlands? It comes from Cleveland. Oh, okay. okay. That's what I thought. That's what <laughs> the name gave it away. Exactly. Uh, yeah. So no, this tell is us the, about the yeah. Tell us about the history. It's the city style of Berlin, of course. Although it is true that um, similar vice 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 beers, uh, which were tart. We'll, we'll get into this a little bit more about what they look like. Okay. Um, but were tart and different from the Bavarian Weissbier style. So they, they, they existed in the Northern German area uh, around Berlin. So other, other places, even though they were not called probably, they didn't probably in, you know, <laughs> other cities call them Berliner Weiss. So they were very similar. So it was a, it was kind right. of a regional style, even okay. though uh, Berlin is the hub of all of that. And the name we know goes back at least uh, 400 years to around 1600. Um, but, the but Visa means Visa means white, okay. and it is common uh, in white white beer. So in all languages of Europe, w- w- referenced typically wheat beer, but that was because wheat beer was not roasted uh, in its preparation. It was usually wind malted, which is to say mm-hmm. they would uh, germinate it and then just let it dry in the sun. So it right. got no color. And so the resultant beer, whether it was wheat beer in, in Belgium or, or Berliner Weisse or uh, Bavarian Weisse, uh, was, was very pale, often milky, and it looked uh, looked whitish. And so it, it contrasted dark or sometimes red beer that was uh, barley beer. But so, the fascinating thing ahead, is, <laughs> yeah, no, the fascinating thing that I learned in my research about Berliner Weisse is we think of it as a wheat beer style uh, because Weisse uh, is typically wheat beer, but uh, periodically throughout its history, it's been made with all different kinds of grain, including all barley versions going oh, okay. back a long time. So yeah, it's a, it's a funny style. Yeah, well, I'm just going to say that it, uh, that means that I can be forgiven and others can probably be forgiven when they uh, conflate uh, wheat and white terms. That, that conflation now is pretty complete. And I think most casual beer drinkers think Visa means wheat. Right. Um, and it would be right. reasonable to think that uh, because it, it, it is in all cases that I know of, uh, Vices are, are wheat beers. So 
Yeah, but not always a, necessarily Fribble and Hervisa. That's right. Uh, they but, were made. They were made in. And, and this is the thing that really, uh, as I unfold all of this, uh, I want to emphasize that Berliner Weiss is not really a style. It's a. It's a range of different beers that all came under the same name. Okay. And um, you know, you and I had. I, I, I complain on that pod extra that nobody should be calling those beers we drank. Uh, Berliner Weisses, and I, th- I think <laughs> uh, the ones that are made with the the, the milkshake sours. Yeah, uh, the think, one. Yeah, the one I had was basically a uh, a, a blackberry smoothie. Yeah, with, with some uh, alcohol. <laughs> right, like a eight percent blackberry smoothie. Yes. called Berliner Weisse. <laughs> um, and I think there's a way in which uh, it's defensible that that a, a critic, a, a traditionalist might say, we should not call these Berliner Weisses. But as it emerges, uh, there's also an argument to be made that um, it's really within the, the, the tradition, the traditional tradition, going back to Berlin, of how these beers have been presented over time. Okay. So it's interesting. Right. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll just run through some of the quick history. The the, though the beer style goes back to 1600, uh, and they're famous for uh, being celebrated as the Champagne of the North, uh, the Champagne du Nord, uh, celebrated by uh, Napoleon's army as they came into Berlin. Mm-hmm. That's the story. Every time you read about uh, Berliner Weisse, that's the, <laughs> that's the first story that they tell. <laughs> yeah. And then they often say that uh, at that time, there were 700 breweries in Berlin making Berliner Weisse. And I, I, I think that 700 breweries thing, I've never seen the actual source, except that it's repeated all over the place. <laughs> that's that's an insane figure. And I think that's totally <laughs> apocryphal. I can't. That's just crazy. 700 breweries in one city all making the same kind of beer. Uh, it, maybe it included, yeah, who knows what that means, but I, I don't know. I, th- I, I, I think that was probably kind of, uh, I would, I wouldn't repeat that. I'm not repeating that. No one else should repeat that. That sounds, it does sound a bit nuts, but the idea that it's the champagne suggests that it's, uh, uh, very effervescent. Huh? That's right. And I think, you know, uh, when we look at the, the, the kind of basic, style of beer the thing that was always there it was always a it was always a tart beer mm-hmm. uh it was always very pale uh mm-hmm. and it was always very effervescent okay. it wasn't always a wheat beer it wasn't always weak we think of berliner weisses as being around 3.5 percent yeah uh um there are historic examples of it being as strong as bach so you know like six and a half seven percent oh really wow yeah uh and and and, and all different strengths really um but so, you know, it, it, that, that's not fixed. Some of them were even made with oats uh, historically. Mm-hmm. So you could, you could have a beer that was a 6.5% beer made with all barley and a little bit of oats. Uh, and it would be called Berliner Weisse. So that would be a, a traditional, you know, that yeah. could have been a traditional presentation. Um, but it was after uh, the Napoleon's time that, better data and this comes from ron pattinson our our far famous uh, beer historian who comes up with this stuff he he was the one who kind of tracked actual breweries in the uh, 19th century and they they really peaked around 1900 they grew throughout that entire uh, century uh, peaking at around 50 or maybe four dozen something like that around 1900 mm-hmm. and that was really the golden age of berliner weisse and in that period, so if we consider that the golden age and look at how they were made, uh, 
that I, I, as sort of the baseline, when we, when people talk now about Berliner Weisse, like the, the traditional baseline beer style, they're, they're talking about this 19th century beer, which was typically about two thirds wheat and a third barley, uh, typically relatively weak style of beer. Um, it might've had different mashing regimes. So the way they made the, the, uh, you know, the way they prepared the mash, um, but then it got interesting and then there were some variables. So it, it's an acidified mash. So they would mm-hmm. make it with lactobacillus, okay. which creates this uh, lactobacillus is the, the ingredient in yogurt. So it creates that almost citrusy, very sharp, clear, single noted acidity that you get in yogurt. Right. Uh, and, and some breweries would split their wort and do a lactic fermentation only with lactobacillus and the other half with uh, regular ale yeast and then blend them. And then others would do a blended pitch of lacto and saccharomyces into their wort and come up with uh, uh, a blended lactic uh, alcohol fermentation. And then interestingly, um, sometimes they boiled the wort afterwards and sometimes they didn't. Uh, and if they didn't boil it, they weren't using hops, except there was there were a few accounts of people not boiling the wort, but doing a separate preparation of uh, boiled, they would, they would do a higher gravity mash, uh, and then separately boil hops in water and water the, uh, the wort down a little bit with this hoppy uh, hop water. Mm-hmm. which would give it a little bit of a preservative quality. And the reason they didn't just boil the mash was because they wanted it to be as pale as possible. So that's oh. a real, a real clue to the, the, the importance of it being a very pale style. Right. Uh, and then the key, and I think this is going to be the thing that, that really becomes the, the kind of touchstone for the beer uh, throughout the rest of, of the period uh, and, and, and now in the revival is at that point they would age the beer and they use different techniques but it would be aged with bretonomyces so wild yeast and uh, it might be aged from a few months up to a year on wild yeast after this original mixed fermentation preparation with alcohol uh, with uh, saccharomyces and and lactobacillus and we're going to talk in a minute about why they would do that so that was kind of the classic preparation uh-huh. and then uh it began to change uh world war one hammered it and the number of breweries which had been you know close to 50 at the turn of the century by the end of world war one was down to nine mm-hmm. and it bounced back up to 14 at one point but it never really it never really recovered right after that um and that was at the same time that loggers were were streaming up uh buoyed by the success of pilsner um, and so those were also hitting the, the city's local style and kind mm-hmm. of, kind of, uh, knocking it out. Um, and then by the, by the 70s and, uh, by the 1970s, um, it had become so kind of weird and, and, and unusual that they, that brewers, this, they were doing a thing that they had started as early as 1900, but it wasn't, I think, uh, super popular until this later period, which is they would add a shus of, uh, sweetness. So right. a shot, shush is a shot. Um, and the classic ones were raspberry. Mm-hmm. And so it's like a, sh- a sugar syrup, 
Yeah. Uh, and one flavor is raspberry and one is uh, woodruff, which is kind of a marshmallow rooty <laughs> flavor. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, as our, our good friend, Alan um, uh, Taylor uh, was my, my first, my first ever Blinder Weisser was with him and, and uh, he gave me the woodruff. But uh, the only reason I mention the story now is that he, he described Woodruff as the Lucky Charms marshmallow flavor. <laughs> there you go. Which yeah. is exactly right. Yeah. Perfect. I'm glad you remember that. I kind of forgotten that, that was <laughs> that's a great description. It's exactly what it tastes like. It's green. And it comes from yeah. what? A flower? A flower or a or a herb? Yeah. Something like that. A flower, but yeah. Anyway. Uh, anyway, go, yeah. go go ahead. Sorry, just sorry to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, so the so the woodruff was green and the and the raspberry was red. So you would order it red or green. And in this period, um, uh, it, um, the great writer Michael Jackson would write about it, uh, and it kind of evolved. And the most, and it kept getting more and more debased. And I'm going to read it, his his te- he just continued to alter his text a little bit as uh, the 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 culture around the beer style changed. And this is from he first started writing in 1977, and the thing I'm quoting is about 20 years later. Um, and you can see how how debased it had become. So he wrote, he writes, to soften its acidity, it is often laced with a dash, a shush of raspberry syrup as though it were a cure royale. The green, slightly medicinal tasting essence of the herb Woodruff, Waldmeister, is also used for this purpose. Candy striped straws in the appropriate colors are sometimes provided. Berliner Weisse is typically served during the summer, especially on the terraces by the city's several lakes. It is not Berlin's everyday beer, but is the famous specialty associated with the city. So by the time, uh, you know, by the 1990s, it's really this weird little thing that nobody drinks straight and is sweetened and kind of, I think you have as a a random little specialty beer, sort of like, a you know, in place of a Rattler, you might have a Berliner Weisse. and uh, the last, the, by uh, by the turn of the century, there were only two breweries making it, Kindle and Schulteis. And Schulteis was the one making it the traditional way with the um, with the Brettanomyces. And mm-hmm. Kindle was now making a kettle soured version, so not using Brettanomyces at all. Right, right. And uh, Schulteis started to discontinue it after 2000 and made the last uh, batches in the middle part of the uh, of the aughts, and that's when Kindle and Schulteis merged. Uh, Schulteis brand still exists, but the original Brettanomyces Schulteis no longer is made, uh, and only the Kindle kettle soured version is around. Mm. Uh, and um, and they even package their beer that you can buy a, the straight, uh, un, unsweetened version, but they also sell bottles of the green and the red, uh, which, oh, which was. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Pre-sweetened. And that was it. And so from 2006 until, you know, uh, a decade later, it was basically a dead style, except for this weird red and green sweet beer. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, uh, and I'm going to talk a little bit about the brewing and other stuff, but we have a couple of these and we should, we should start drinking them. We should get started. And as we're doing that, I want to just interject one question, um, which is, uh, you know, a lot of these cities have their own sort of classic styles. I think in Cologne is probably the most famous, right, for having Kolsch. But uh, was is is there another style associated with Berlin, or was this Berlin style that just kind of faded as Pilsner made its way up? This is definitely the the style 
that's that uh, Berlin is really famous for. You okay. know, other other breweries in Berlin would have made other beer styles. Sure, uh, but there isn't any one sort of really classic style associated only with Berlin. <clears throat> no, not uh, Berliner Weisse is that style. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, which one should we open? By the way, I don't know. What do you think? Should we go with? Uh, so we have two. We don't. I, I don't have. Uh, I would love to have. There's a, a producer who only makes. There's one br- producer in Berlin who only makes Berliner Weisse, Schneeuwele, uh, and I can't. Could I don't know if it's. I know that uh, Ulrika Gens sends some of her beer over here, but I couldn't find any. I don't know if she sent any recently. So we don't have that. Okay. What we do have is a straight Berliner Weisse, uh, which I think is not made with Brettanomyces from Bonhof, which is in Leipzig. And then we have Lemka. Leipzig. Uh, in, yeah, Leipzig. <laughs> Leipzig. So, <laughs> uh, they, uh, this is, Bonhoff is the famous producer of uh, Agoza. So it kind of makes sense that they would do this. Uh, uh, and they make it like Agoza. They, as far as I can tell, they do not use uh, Brettanomyces, and we'll, we'll see about that. But they do use oats, oats. which is kind of cool. Yeah, yeah throwback. Why don't we start we have, with that one? Okay, let's start with that one. The other one we'll have, we have is a traditional uh, Berlin brewery who makes it in the traditional way, but it's one with raspberry in it. So, yeah, um, that's why we'll I think let's, first. let's do the non-fruited one first. And, <laughs> and you, uh, thankful, uh, thank you, Jeff, for, for track, tracking these down. You delivered, hand-delivered my, my Berliner Weisse to my house the other day, so appreciate that. I'm on the case, man. Oh, and I got to remind myself it's effervescent. It is, and uh, the tradition, the traditional serving vessel for these looks like a uh, kind of like a uh, Belgian goblet. Um, yes, it's so yeah, it's so New Alan Taylor. They're so they're they're so bubbly that you want a uh, a wide surface area so that the they don't foam over. Uh, All so right, this, so it's very pale. It, it's very pale and it's hazy, which is kind of classic. It's uh, very effervescent. But that that uh, head is diminishing quickly, so that's good because I went a little. I was a little excited for my microphone to pick up my pour. It does have a really nice uh, aroma. Mm. It's quite nice. And it's yeah, so it's got a it's got a sort of a sour tang on the aroma, but very a very clean one. Mm-hmm. Ooh, it's Ooh, that's nice lovely. Look. It is. It is lovely. It's pretty complex too. Uh, actually, we will talk a little bit about characteristics of, of these of the beers that have uh, Brettanomyces versus not, and mm-hmm. it actually tastes more like it might have Brett than not. But I have no evidence that it does use it because it's got a lot of uh, nice uh, fruity esters. It, yeah, and it's got just a little. I don't know, just like a hint of wildness sort of in the back of the palate. I don't know it how better... more... Go ahead. It's kind of, yeah, it's kind of complex. Uh, kettle soured beers are not complex. They're just one note, ding, and it's a great note, but it's not, you know, it's not like it's got a little acidity, it's got a little dryness, it's got a little leather. It's just, nope, ding. And it definitely has fruit on the, you know, the esters are fruity, like lemony. Mm-hmm. It's it's um, really nice. Hmm. This one says it's four point two percent. I think. Where did I read that? Yeah, it does say that. Yeah, which so is very quaffable, but it's very. Um, it doesn't feel thin at all. It's quite, uh, quite fra- flavorful, and it's got a big, nice mouthfeel. Indeed, it's good beer. Uh-huh. 
So let's talk about how these things are brewed because that's a cool, it's a really cool thing. And, and uh, there's a wonderful kind of narrative here. You know, uh, beer styles have two deaths. The first death is when uh, there are no commercial producers around to make them. Right. (laughs) This happened with Goza. Uh, But it's not really a permanent death because if people remember how to make it, then it can be revived, right? It's not it's not lost to the world. Yeah, uh, which is what happened to Goza. Uh, Bonhoff and Riddergutz, uh began making them again, and they 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 found people who knew how to how they were made and made traditional versions. The similar thing happened with Berliner Weisse, uh, in that there's this brewery called or this school called VLB in Berlin. It's a brewing school, mm-hmm. and. Uh, Universities are great places for old information to survive. <laughs> and that's exactly <laughs> what happened. People, by the way, <laughs> I'll put a plug in for that. That's right. That's right. Um, so there, there were, there's of course research and brewing logs and things like that, uh, as well as old bottles, which were in the lab uh, wow. where people, people were analyzing them. And then there's a guy named Kurt Marshall, who was a champion of the original Berliner Weisse style. And he was uh, doing home brewing and making uh, beer uh, and, and, you know, talking to students. And so VLB became this kind of weird nexus where uh, it, it, it was, it, it, it was like the uh, Johnny Appleseed, except people came to it instead of it going out. Uh, and, certain brewers who either uh, were connected to the school or went to the school became super fascinated in this wonderful historical style from the city they were in. And they started researching it and figuring out how to make the traditional style. Mm -hmm. And now those brewers have left VLB and gone out into the world and begun to make them traditionally. And, and, and they're doing incredibly cool work, uh, in reviving the style in its traditional way. So that second death has never did happen because now people are making Brett, uh, making Berliner Weisse the way it was made, um, you know, before 2000, which is super cool. So what does that look like? And uh, how how does it work? So one of our friends, uh, Alan Taylor, who we've talked about (laughs) quite a bit and who you just invoked, um, was one of those students at VLB. And he was one of those guys who was super fascinated in Berliner Weisse. He found some old bottles, which he even brought back somehow. I don't know how he got them home, but he did. Uh, and he figured out how how the the process went. And he's the first person I talked to who really was an evangelist for the use of Brettanomyces, which as recently as 2016, the Brewers Association uh, in their GABF guidelines said, a Berliner Weisse should not have. If you taste a Brettanomyces in a Berliner Weisse, they said as recently as 2016, uh, it should be eliminated because it's in a, it's not authentic. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And by Alan, the way, we should, we should mention that Alan is, uh, oh, I don't know all his titles, but Zoigel House in Portland and a couple of other breweries he's uh, deeply involved in. Right. And he's the founder and brewer at Zoigel House here. Zoigel House, which is the main, the main thing. Yeah. Right. 
So I, you know, when I was getting into Berliner Weisse, I said, so what's the story with that, man? Why would you use Brett? Um, particularly, you know, what's the point? You have this really low alcohol beer. You've already fermented it out. So there's, Brett's not going to have a huge, uh, you know, effect. It's not going to do a thing like a Lambic where it makes it, where it takes wort. And these wild yeasts get to go to town on a whole bunch of sugars. Right. Uh, it's going to have a minimal effect. And he said, well, uh, it's critically important for ester production. Um, for that fruity character that you get. And I have a mm -hmm. quote here. He, okay. he, he said, the ethyl acetate and ethyl lactate levels, which these are produced by uh, uh, the lactobacillus, right. are significantly higher in the traditional product. Brett on its own doesn't create the levels of the mixed pitch. Lactobacillus and Brettanomyces synergistically create a much more complex beer. So what happens is those the lactic acid produces these acids which are then converted into esters by uh the uh, br by the brettanomyces mm -hmm. if you don't have the brett you just have plain acids but if you throw the bread on top you get all this fruitiness so it produces something that we don't really associate so much with brettanomyces uh, although we should is mm -hmm. is these kind of tropical esters and they can be they can really vary depending on what the brett does and when i was in in berlin last year uh at schneeula uh drinking uh, uh ulrich Agenza's beers i was shocked to find that every one of them had this really distinctive peach note and it was so dead on the money for peach i at one point i had to ask uh you didn't use peach in this and you know it's totally so it's purely just an ester thing right just like yep that's just an ester thing uh so it you know when 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 we talk about the characteristic flavor of berliner weisse and when you're looking to see is this a real berliner weisse does it have the real character you're really looking for those esters are the dead giveaway you're not going to find a huge amount of the horse blanket and that stuff although you might get a little right. bit yeah but um that's not what they're making they're, that's not why they use the bread they use it for the fruitiness and the complexity that it, that it you know it takes the the raw materials that lacto and and sack give you and and mm -hmm. convert it into this much more complex beer hmm so we'll have to find out whether uh, Bonhoff uses that or not. My, my very brief research uh, did not reveal anything, but there you go. Yeah. By the way, um, I'm sorry this takes us in a slightly tangential, but uh, both of these Blitterweisses have the same little tag on their label, which it says brewed in Germany but canned fresh in the United States. And they say there's a tank container canning project. And they both have exactly the same logo. So obviously they're both a part of this project where apparently they ship over a big tank mm -hmm. and, then, and then it gets canned locally, which is cool. Although I think modern canning, I would be quite happy having a can shipped directly, but um, I imagine that's slightly cost effective. Yeah. And this is a thing that, that dates back some time. Uh, I know that uh, Pilsner Raquel did this uh, in the early 20th century. Um, they would send uh beer in its conditioning tank over so that they could bottle it up fresh in America and get it to people fresh. Um, yeah, they have, a, they have a picture on this label that kind of looks like a conditioning tank basically on its side uh, being uh -huh. shipped with a cage, you know. <laughs> right. So that's kind of cool. <clears throat> it is cool. It is, I mean, with Berliner Weisse, these are beers that um, age incredibly well, right? They're already very low alcohol, so right. there's not a lot of uh, degradation that happens uh, through the through the the 
the the the chemistry of uh of the beer and then acidity is a perfect uh uh age preventer yeah that's what i thought you were going to mention is how acidic they are and that probably keeps them nice and stable yeah so i think this is one of the few beer styles that you could easily ship in can form and it would be fine um but anyway they they they're doing this is cool yeah well this um this bonhoeff beer is really really good it is really good and it it does have uh i would say pretty balanced acidity so if you see it and you're you're not a person who likes like really smacked in the face uh, this is a nice beer it's, yeah it's pretty it's pretty pleasant it's, it's like, very it's like a, yeah it's 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 more like a lemonade kind of uh tart rather than a you know mm-hmm. a, a enamel melter precisely and the thing i was going to say is that you know for 4.2 percent beer there's a lot of breweries right now that are trying to trying to make session beers and a lot of session IPAs, which are, can be interesting, but often find that those beers have a little sort of hollow center. You know, they don't, they don't have a, like a rich mouthfeel. You feel like you're kind of drinking flavored water. Um, uh, but this is a really rich, complex beer. Uh, it's like a full, ex- full, a full beer experience without all the alcohol, which is kind of how I think about milds too, but yeah, and that's that's one of the things that's so amazing about Berliner Weisse. So with 3.5% of alcohol, you can get one of the most complex uh, flavor profiles of any beer made on the planet. And yeah, you, you know, absolutely. you you don't you don't have to have a lot of alcohol to get complexity. Uh, so, I, in fact, speaking of that, I'm going to go in for the Lemka now. All right, I'm going I'm to finish off my uh, my Bonhoeff first, and then I'll go. In. <laughs> Uh, we have another. I just brewery. want to prove a point about quaffability here. So, excellent. We have another brewery here in America, uh, and I spoke to uh, the the brewer there, Jace Marty, at Shell's Brewery in New Ulm, Minnesota. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, you know them because they are the brewers of Green Belt. Mm-hmm. Well, Jace uh, <laughs> discovered in his family. So this is an old family brewery, uh, and he is. Uh, one of the younger uh, members of the, or a member of the younger generation, he discovered a bunch of cypress uh, wood tanks that the brewery, uh, when it was still poor after World War, or after uh, Prohibition, uh, didn't have a lot of capital. They, for some reason, cypress tanks were cheap, so they bought ten cypress tanks, which they huh. used up uh, kind of until fairly recently. Like, I, if memory serves, like the early '90s or something like that. Uh, and then they they finally moved all their production out of there. And he found these things in a barn or something. And he's like, "Man, this is we should do something with this." And he was already home brewing, uh, and he was into sour beers. And, he's, and he said, "You know, this would be kind of cool." So he went off to VLB, back to the VLB connection, uh-huh. uh, uh, and he also got the bug. And he came back and he said, "You know what we're going to do? We're going to we're going to turn these into Berliner Weisse." Uh, barrels and so now shells has a whole project where they make berliner vices and he kind of uh he he makes a, a classic berliner vice but he also does stronger ones and one with a little bit darker malt some with uh hops and you know a variation but they're all they all use the same pro- uh, process and he uh he and both uh uh so Jason and, and Ulrika both managed to track down the last brewer uh, at Schulteis, and his name is Wolfram Long. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they uh, they got his uh, access to his brewing logs, and he taught them everything he knew. Uh-huh. Um, 
he he was happy to pass along his secrets. Awesome. And at Shell, they do one thing that they that he used to do at Schulteis, which is they take a percentage of aged Berliner Weisse after it's gone through the conditioning tank, uh-huh. and they pitch that along with the uh, Saccharomyces and Lactobacillus mm-hmm. at the start of fermentation. They put some old beer back in there as well, uh-huh. uh, and that is where they get the source of their bread. And uh, when I spoke to Jace, uh, which I did a couple of weeks ago, he said, it's like the sourdough process. Right. It would help, right. It would help. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it would help lower the pH, but it would also help bring some of that residual character into the new batch. So that's that's what they've started to do now, which is straight out of the Schulteis uh, practice, which is um, fantastic. And I think it's especially fantastic that he and Ulrika have both uh, had access to this guy. So the living the living transmission was was made and now they're they're making beer having having kind of learned from the master so it's a it's a super cool story yeah uh okay so let's drink this beer um the lemka beer uh by the way they say that this is brewed using the traditional three culture fermentation yep so that this uh lemka is another uh, brewery, uh, the, the brewer there whose last name is Lemka, <laughs> uh, he was, a, he's another VLBer who, uh, is, uh, Lemka is in Berlin and they're one of the, the breweries, the first breweries, and maybe the very first brewery to revive this tradition. So, uh, when I was in Berlin, I went to Lemka and I had a Berliner Weisse there and it was super cool. And, uh, this has raspberries, but this one is actually brewed, uh, uh, matured with fresh raspberries. So it's conditioned on fresh raspberry, which is such a syrup. Yeah, it's such a great idea. It's a way of of, of combining uh, what had become a real tradition of the shus uh, with, you know, something a little bit more respectable. Let's use actual fruit. <laughs> hey, <laughs> instead of just dumping syrup in there. Uh, and I want to I want to see the one done with fresh Woodruff. Which, by the way, uh, I asked you earlier, and then when you were reading that quote, uh, it sounds like Woodruff is a, an er, as an herb classified as an herb. There you but go. When you yeah, see little should... pictures of it. it. Looks like little white flowers. So that herb is like a flowering plant, I think. Uh, makes sense. Yeah, it's uh, often the case that you know uh, people like coriander is a seed and it's a leaf and it's a yeah. So right. uh, this is um, pink, by the way. <laughs> just, it is very. I, it's pink, but it's not. It's not unnatural. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's not garish pink. But I just just uh, it was slightly surprising to me. I don't know why it's got it's it's conditioned on fresh raspberries. So. Uh, but it's lovely. Mm. It's really nice. I really like this one. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit hard to uh, tell, you know, that the underlying beer is, is is competing with the raspberry flavor, which is fresh. Yeah, the ra- very fresh. Exactly. The raspberry flavor is really distinct and fresh. I mean, it tastes like a raspberry in your mouth. It's not at all a syrup. And it's not yeah. like hiding in the background. It's very foreground. And it's balanced by this really nice, clean tart snap you know mm-hmm. oh, it's okay. yeah you would not confuse this with a soda or a syrup or anything no. like that it's, and the raspberries on the nose as well and the nose yeah. and the mouth and it's just that that real that real essence of fresh raspberry it's amazing actually i don't think i've had a fruit beer that quite conveys this amount this sort of sense of freshness before. this nose you're right is really nice the truth is i didn't know they made this beer uh, even though I visited the brewery and I was there uh, with with fresh raspberry, it's a really cool innovation. I, I really commend them for this. 
Mm, this is fantastic beer. Oh my goodness. Yeah, the nose is crazy. Yeah, it's four percent. It's like yeah, the nose is like sticking your nose into a, a literally a, a basket of fresh picked raspberries. It really is. If you held it under somebody's nose, they didn't know what was there, and you they had their eyes closed. They'd say, "Ooh, fresh raspberry." Crazy. How do they get that essence of well, raspberry to, to shine through? That's the cool thing about acid. It 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 uh, it pres- it's a preservative, so it, yeah. it captures that stuff. Uh, you, you find this in lambics too. Lambics have the base beer is much more aggressive, so it, it it's more it competes more, it but dominates uh, more. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but it but that acidity is a way of preserving that and, and kind of capturing its essence. Wow. So we have we have while while we're doing this uh, just today on on Twitter, uh, Kyle Navis sent uh, a thing. Uh, an email or a, a thing via Twitter, which was so. What are the kids calling these things? Or DM. Uh, yeah, it was actually a DM, okay. uh, which I'm just going to throw in here. He said, maybe it's too, not too late to sneak this in for today, but do you know what the deal is with mixed firm, usually fruit being added beers packaged in clear bottles? And I'm like, well, I got to put this in our Berliner Weisse because it's so perfect. Okay. Go. Uh, and, uh, he said, you know, how are they getting around the skunking? No hopes at all. Question, hops at all? Question mark. Well, in a beer like a Berliner Weisse and the, that, those weird ones that we had, it may well be that there are no hops used in there. Um, uh, and uh, Berliner Weisse, when I asked Ulrika about which hops she used, she snor- she literally snorted and she said <laughs> hops, <laughs> like it was a really dumb question. Uh, she said hops are not significant, um, and she really tries to minimize the use of hops. She actually uses them, but they're they're used in such small quantities uh, that they're only acting as a preservative. Um, uh, so she she wants no hop character, and she's trying to use the hops that have the, as little character as possible. So that 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 could be an, any uh, a thing. And also, there are now hop products which don't skunk. So you may right. have seen um, that the champagne of beers, uh, Miller High Life, is in a clear bottle and it never gets skunky. And that's because they use a hop product that uh, has that precursor that le- leads to the skunkiness removed. So mm. um, so. That's that's what I was I would guess is going on there. I think probably breweries handle that differently. So you'd have to check with a specific specific brewery. So yeah, and 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 I, if you can, if skunking's not an issue, then a clear bottle is actually a really nice presentation. If you've got a pretty beer, which some of these it, are, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's really true. And it is you know we we drink with our eyes, so why not? I mean, let people see it. Yeah. So I, I would just say that those speaking of. Uh, referencing Kyle's question then I'm done here is you know so these these new beers there's things called Florida Vices which are kettle soured quote quote, unquote Berliner Vices that have fruit added Mm -hmm. uh, and all all the way up to these New England hazy milkshake sours Um, you know traditionalists may say oh no 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 that's not a you know you can't you can't call that a, a Berliner Weisse but if you if you look at the woeful state of of Berliner Weisses, you know, in, in, in 1990, yeah. where they were drinking them with straws. I mean, that was, that was 100% an expression of Berlin brewing. And and when we talked to Alan about this, I said, my God, you spend a year making these beers. You go through all these convolutions. You're going to throw a bunch of uh, woodruff in there. That's crazy. And he said, well, yeah, it's totally traditional. You should, you shouldn't consider that a, uh, a debasement of it, which I disagree with. I do actually consider it a debasement, <laughs> but he was making a cultural point 
And, you know, style is all about culture. Beer style is all about culture. So uh, if you're, if you're a little bit of a, a hardcore traditionalist and you don't like the use of the, the word Berliner Weisse with these new beers, I mean, you do have to contend with the fact that we had some pretty debased beers being called Berliner Weisse in Berlin made by Berlin brewers. So you, you have to deal with that. And, and, uh, yeah, and that's and, where we are. Yeah. I think we've, we've, made, we've made clear on the pod, at least I, I'm not like a real stickler. Uh, I think that nomenclature is, you know, these style categorizations, they, they're living things and uh, they only matter as much as they convey something to the consumer that we can all agree on. So, yeah. And it's clear that uh, this word Berliner Weisse right now, as maybe it always has been, is really up for grabs. All so. right. But speaking of nomenclature, I want to <laughs> see if I can stump the chump here, uh, referencing the old car, car guys. Uh, Himbeer. Berliner, uh, Budka Weisse Himbeer is what it says on Lemke Berlin's label. Yeah, Himbeer. Bud- sorry, Budika Weisse Himbeer. What's that? I don't know what Bud- Budika. Him- himbeer, I think, is just uh, raspberry. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's disappointing. <laughs> you knew. I was hoping you had no idea. Uh, by the way, speak, speaking of Berlin, Berlin rocks. Berlin is an amazing city. Uh, you should all go and drink Berliner Weisse in Berlin because uh, it's worth the trip. Yeah, I mean... Uh, the 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 entire country of Germany is incredibly cool, and drinking culture basically anywhere you go is cool. Uh, and, and yeah, and you should go. Uh, I can't encourage. I think people have overlooked. We've come to the place now where where German beer seems old old and stodgy, and and people really aren't that interested in it. But uh, the drinking culture there is is unrivaled. I mean, there are. You know other places where it's as good, but it's not exceeded by any place. And every every city you go to has a slightly different drinking uh, different drinking culture. And and Berlin is cool because they're the one place in the entire country that's embraced uh, innovation and and newness, uh, which I, I think is one reason, weirdly, why Berliner Weisse is actually surviving there. It's because Berliners had given up on the style, but now it's being reintroduced and beer geeks are like, this is cool. I want to drink. Yeah. This. Well, that's what I would, that's how I would describe Berlin is it's kind of this unique city in Europe. That's a reinventing itself. And it's kind of a little bit un, untethered to its traditions and past uh, in a weird way. I'm about to, I'm about to describe why I think that is, is good for its traditions and past is that, uh, uh, it kind of, you know, it's got this weird, unique p- place in history and was divided city and all of that stuff. Um, it's also sort of uh, close to the east. And so it's got a lot of migration and a lot of it's very multicultural. Uh, and I think because of its history, it's sort of, it's not so tethered to tradition, but it also that I think in this, in a strange way, that also means people are looking for tradition, looking for the past, looking for ways in which make. Uh, uh, things that make Berlin unique because a modern Berlin is almost this sort of reinvention of itself. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm making sense, but I, uh, so it doesn't surprise me that people have sort of rediscovered this old style and embraced it, um, but also embrace sort of all the different manifestations that it can potentially have. Yeah, no, I think it's exactly right. You would not, 
you you would not expect this in Munich, which is sort of the polar opposite. Uh, right, uh, very conservative. Yeah, yeah, uh, of Berlin, where you know, and, and the the great thing about you go to Munich. The great thing about Munich is you have all these amazing old breweries that have been making the same beer for a hundred years, um, which is fantastic. But you have Berlin, which you just mentioned. Uh, which I didn't get into, but you mentioned that it was, you know, it was a city divided into two countries. There were actually two Schultheises, one in the East and one in the West. Yeah. The last four breweries. uh, Yeah. And there's this weird thing where like Schultheis, one of the Schultheises bought Kindle and then Kindle bought the other Schultheis or something like that. It was really weird stuff. (laughs) uh, You know, you, you had, you had, um, the last there were four uh, traditional breweries making or four, four breweries making traditional Berliner Weisse, uh and two were on the west two were in the west and two were in the east so you know it's 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 weird you had two countries <laughs> making this city beer style um wow. you know as recently as the 1980s it was so amazing yeah. yeah well i loved visiting berlin i thought it was it's an amazing city it's really it's really a great it's like a, just so unique for europe now it's like an old and new city all in one and reinventing itself as you, you know, as you can experience that as you're there. So totally. All right. Well, we should probably then, uh, uh, put an end to the, 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 our long discussion on Berliner Weisse. Yeah. Uh, we're, I know we're running long, but we do have a mailbag. Our mailbag is getting full and we should run through that. Yeah. We got to get, we, we need to, we need to do mailbag service. If we're, if we're pleading for mailbag entries, then we need to, to address those that we get. So let's go. Let's do it. All right. Uh, let's start in Brussels with right. an Irishman, uh, Owen Walsh. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> who's, who's a friend of mine. He's a beer writer. Uh, he, he married a nice Flemish lass, moved to Brussels, uh, writes about beer there, and uh, showed me around when I was last in Brussels, which was great. So Owen writes, I was listening to the podcast last week and a fun thought experiment came to me that I thought you and Patrick might be able to shed light on. Looking optimistically beyond the current COVID mess to an eventual post-COVID future, if you were to take a transcontinental train journey east to west across the U.S., and, you know, you, first of all, you should start in the west, but all right. We, we, we can talk about we can talk about taking a train across the United States but go go finish the question that's right where would be the absolute must stop beer cities and maybe oh. slightly lesser well-known, uh, well-known beer destinations Amtrak might pass through from New York to California or the Pacific Northwest uh, goes without saying I'm a big fan of the show etc well, thank you Owen I, I'm, glad, I'm glad you read that last part yes yeah, yeah. Well, you gotta get thank that you, in Owen. there wait a minute so first before and, I get started and I should say that Owen uh, hosted his own podcast uh, during the COVID thing, which was a balm. It's exceptional. Uh, you should look for that. Brussels Beer City is his jam. If you Google that, you'll find it. And he also has a Brussels Beer City podcast where he talks to Bruxelles, I think I'm pronounced, I think that's the right word, uh, who are sometimes connected to beer and sometimes not connected to beer about their city and about beer. And it's extraordinary. He's a real talent as far as uh, podcasting goes. Uh, he's actually far better than us. So why are you listening yeah, to us? Like, listening to say, talent is not something we would ever associate with ourselves and podcasting. <laughs> totally. And that's cool. I'm going to actually look that up, by the way, because um, I don't listen to podcasts other than those about the Arsenal Football Club, but that's right. another story. Uh, okay, so uh, one thing I have to, as a service to all of our international listeners, 
Actually, two things occurs to me, by the way. Uh, I mentioned that Woodruff is like Lucky Charms marshmallow. So if you don't know what Lucky Charms are, it's a kid's, a kid's sugar cereal that has marshmallow bits in it that are kind green. of can, candy marshmallow. So. And they're, they're, green, they're green colored and they taste like green. <laughs> they're just, yeah, weird. Okay. Uh, <laughs> the second thing is, uh, if you're thinking about taking Amtrak, Amtrak across the United States, first, probably don't. And second, realize that most passenger rail has, uh, uh, we don't actually have dedicated passenger rail lines in most parts of the United States. And so they're on, they have to use freight rail lines and they're always uh, uh, second in the pecking order. So if there's any freight that's got to get through, Amtrak has to stop. And so Amtrak can be an interesting experience in, uh, well, it can be a, a useful lesson in patience. That's right. And you can do it. You can do this, but, um, but it's it something I'd like to do, but if I was going to go across the continent, I'd probably do it in Canada because they have a wonderful transcontinental. Yeah. Canada. Or maybe get in, you know, you're in America. You got to get in a car, man. I don't know if Owen drives. Right. Even get not. an old, yeah. So rent an old Cadillac, like with fins. <laughs> do, it, do it right. Do it right. <laughs> drive, drive the old highways like route 66. Okay. So let's think about, uh, beer cities. You got to stop in. All right, so uh, I'm going to actually uh, uh, discount the Northwest because that should be just a whole separate, like you should just come and spend like four months. But I would start, are we going east to west or west to east? Uh, let's, let's follow his thing. Let's go east to west. We'll, oh, we'll... harder. Well, that's no, it's not hard. Well, I don't, I don't know anything about trains, but I will say you should start in Portland, Maine. Uh, you should definitely... Uh, Portland, Maine is perhaps the second best beer city. I can't, can't quite, I almost said the best beer city in America, but I couldn't quite go there. It, That's it off is, brand, man. It, I know. It's extraordinary. Portland, <laughs> the, the city of Portland occupies the top two slots uh, in America. Uh, and, um, you know, I'm a resident of one, so I put it at one. But uh, Portland, Maine is an amazing city. Uh, Beer City, amazing little tiny. It's a town. It actually reminded me a hell of a lot of Dublin. When I was in Dublin, I was like, man, this looks like Portland, Maine. So mm-hmm. uh, it's a small town, but um, amazing beer culture, amazing breweries. Um, doesn't get the attention that Vermont uh, or Massachusetts gets, but it's a really great place. So I would start there for sure. Sure, I would. I would second that. Uh, where do we go next? Well, we uh, big metropolises. Well, I don't know. I think maybe Philly. You should have Philly. It's an old. I think we're going to add Philly. So let's go Philly. Yeah. Yeah. So Philly. Maybe you go to Port- Portland to Philly. That's Philly now has the uh, the uh, uh, Guinness outcropping, no, right? That's in Baltimore. Oh, Baltimore. Is, Baltimore. My apologies. Yeah, a little bit out of the way, but uh, Baltimore is actually an amazing city. One of my favorite in the country. Um, so, so if you wanted to hit Baltimore, that would be great. There, there are. Uh, some wonderful breweries there, Union Craft Brewing and uh, that incredibly cool, what is it called? The Brewer's Art, uh, in addition to Guinness. So that, that'd be great. I'd be. Yeah, I was going to say, in a United States context or an American context, Philadelphia, uh, uh, Baltimore, and Washington, they're all basically like in the same place. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Owen, you should realize many people, many Europeans who have never been to the United States do not realize how big it is. It's crazy big. It's <laughs> it's the city or the state of Oregon is as is slightly bigger than the entire island of Great Britain. Uh, so 
and that's just one little tiny state up in the corner. So yeah, it's a huge country. So, so I'm curious, you, do you think that, uh, that down South, like Asheville is an obvious, obvious beer Mecca. It's sort of a famous one, but do you think, um, Miami is it worth, worthwhile stop? Uh, if I were going to fill, if I were going to Florida, I would go to, uh, Tampa, Tampa. Okay. Yeah. Uh, they have some great beer culture there. It started with Cigar City. That's often the case. Uh, a flagship brewery or tentpole brewery will will start things. Um, and so, yeah, there you go. So, but you should go to Miami anyway because it's cool. Yeah, well, then there's Miami. You can go to Miami because it's Miami. Um, <laughs> uh, Miami is not actually a great beer city, but uh, all the Miamians can now slag on me. From Philly, I don't know. You know, I mean, I love St. Louis. I love Chicago. Uh-huh. I love Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Minneapolis is fantastic. So yeah. these are these are stops you could kind of target in the middle of the, the country. Um, I, I really like St. Louis a lot. I think you should visit the Anheuser-Busch Brewery there. It's actually pretty cool. And then go to Urban Chestnut, which is also an amazing uh, brewery uh, uh, helmed by a Bavarian, Florian Kuplent, who is one of the best brewers in the country. Um, you're if if you stay on that that track where you're where you're hitting uh, St. Louis, maybe you got to pop up to Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis, and come back down towards Kansas City. Then you're on track to hit Denver. Of course, you got to hit Denver, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I, I mean, Denver's do. Denver's like. I think you do. No, I'm actually. You know, I was gonna I was gonna promote the southern route, but I think you're right. Now that I'm more thinking about it, I think the northern route's the way to go. Um, and then, uh, then, then you're in a, an area that is basically depopulated. Um, so, and you're Mountain a, West, baby. Yeah, <laughs> and you still have you a, and I know it well. <laughs> you have a really long ways to get to go to anywhere. So I don't know if you want to go towards uh, uh, Southern California, which takes you through Las Vegas, which could be fun. Um, or you go north, where you go like. No, I'm with you now. I'm going to stay north. I would say go north. Go. So, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, go to Salt Lake City to see what it's like to drink in a Mormon town, <laughs> uh, and then start heading head north. You could hit uh, uh, Boise, and then you have to make Spokane. a decision. Yeah, Spokane you have to. Make- a, there's a growing. I know from personal experience, that Spokane has a really burgeoning uh, craft beer scene. That's right. So then, then you got to decide whether you want to go towards Portland or Seattle, um, uh, and then there, you know, we we will go. We were Patrick and I were about to go to Vancouver when COVID hit, and Patrick even lobbied. He said, "You know, I know the world's locked down by by COVID, but we should just pop up to Vancouver." And like a day later, we 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 decided no. That's a terrible <laughs> they closed, idea. well, they closed the border. I don't remember that. <laughs> But I was like, oh, let's just go for it. And like, who knows what's going to happen next? And then like the next day, they're like, nope, Canadian border closed. You may not, you may, you shall not pass. Your uh, reasoning was pretty good, but uh, yeah. It we're, getting there. we're getting there soon, British Columbia. Don't forget us. <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. All right. So there you go, Owen. That's, that's our, that's our bet. That's a good, by the way, in the future, that would be a good podcast. We should. It would be a good podcast. I know, I, we should. We should. I always think about these things compartmentalized, but as you know quite well, when you're a foreign traveler, you want to try to go and see as much as possible, and you kind of like to stay on the move because that's the only way to see lots of things. And so it's a good idea to think about how you could um, 
how you could do this. And 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 uh, Owen might not also realize that train is such a minor part of the United States transportation network that neither of us have any real idea what takes you coast to coast. Although I know there is a train that goes from Chicago and ends up in Portland. By the way. I do too. I was going to say that I know. That, we, we, yeah. well, we both know that. That's all. <laughs> so we can get you from one of those places to the other place. Yeah. All right. Uh, next one. Uh, okay. Do you want me to read this one? Or you want to read it? Uh, go ahead. Okay. So we have, uh, oh no. Do you have the name? Right, I read I, did it. I, did I, did I, did I delete our, our writer's name or not include it? Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah, you, you did. <laughs> I didn't notice that till now. Oh, that's, that's on brand. Yeah. Sorry about that. So whoever wrote this, I believe it was a Chicagoan. I'm nope. Matt in Chicagoland is below that. I don't know who wrote this. I'm sorry. Whoever you are, I, I screwed this up. I apologize. Uh, so anyway, here we go. My, my gripe, the presence of lactose in many styles of beer and how they can get conflated with other styles that are adjacent but distinctly different. An example, milkshakes IPA have added unfermentable sugar, while New England IPAs do not. Most Vermont, haze, Vermont hazies, forever, uh, for instance, would bristle at the milkshake label. Then he uh, cited another of other examples. Um, same thing, and he continues, same thing with pastry styles, which I contend need lactose to warrant that moniker. Uh, compared to barrel-aged imperial stouts, even if other adjuncts are uh, present. And then he continues, I propose lactose style names, milkshake IPAs, smoothie sours, and pastry mm -hmm. stouts, mm -hmm. no lactose styles, hazy IPAs, fruited sours, imperial barrel-aged, and adjunct stouts. Thoughts on this? You uh, take that? You're right. Well, I can start by just saying that's interesting, right? Because I've sort of never quite in my own mind disentangled milkshake IPA from hazy IPA. Just I think of it as a sweetness difference, right? But you're right. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Um, <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Jeff? Yeah, I... I I mean, I think it's fine. I think you're going to find milkshake IPAs that don't have lactose. I think you're going to find hazy IPAs that are yeah. pretty traditional hazy IPAs that probably have yeah. a little lactose in there just to boost body. You know, I think something you're going to have. I think the Venn diagram, which looks so clean clean on the page, when once you start getting out in the field, you're going to find it's a little bit crazy. And this but, gets back. To, get back. Sorry to jump to step on you, but I was going to say this gets back to my point earlier, which is that style only only for me is significant when it says something significant to the consumer. Like, so if, if it's a name that conveys something important uh, that allows me to distinguish one style, you know, one type of beer from another, one drinking experience from another, that makes sense. So if it's just the lactose that makes that difference, that's fine. But if it's the fact that you want to distinguish sweet hazies from more uh, uh, less sweet hazies, then uh, if it's only the lactose that matters, that would work. But if it's not, and it doesn't. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I would say to the commenter, uh, I agree that you're you're pointing at a real uh, difference yeah. in, in terms of presentation. Like these these styles have a, a, a distinctive a bright line that separates them. And you're you're pointing to that uh, and you're 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 being a little bit prescriptive in the way that they should be made. Um, and I'm not sure about that point, but I totally agree that, uh, you know, uh, there's some confusion about a milkshake versus hazy IPA and so on. And those are really different styles. And for, from the consumer perspective, having some clarity on that would be good. So I'm with you, yeah. man. 
I mean, here's an example, which just, if, if we reserve the milkshake moniker to those that are really sweet in presentation and the hazy to those that are less sweet in presentation, then this sort of, it sort of accomplishes that, uh, that goal, um, whether or not that sweetness is caused by lacto or not. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. We should talk to Uber about that. That'll be good. Yeah. All right. So that's, those are the, that answers the question at the end. Thoughts on this? Those are our thoughts for now. <laughs> you got you paid for nothing. <laughs> All right. Last one. I'll write, I'll read Matt in Chicagoland writes, I would love an episode on the rise of hard seltzer. Hmm. I have yet to hear someone connect its rise to the rise of La Croix over the past decade. There has to be a connection. As I saw all sorts of people drinking La Croix, uh, and then a few years later, saw them uh, see them pounding hard seltzers. I have seen devoted craft drinkers switch from drinking Dark Lord to a Truly at the same party. My guess is people want an easy alcohol delivery system, and the taste profile of seltzers now appeals to them more than light lager. Please investigate and expand on this theory. Uh, get Brian Roth to come on this episode and give us two cents. Okay, we will investigate very quickly. All right, and, done. And I, no. I got to tell you, Brian Roth is going to love that when you think of his name, you think seltzer. He'll seltzer. love that. <laughs> You're welcome, Brian. But it is a really good point. I Actually, I think it's an excellent point that seltzers could have sort of really became a rage prior to the hard seltzer becoming a rage. But that's not accidental, right? Like beverage companies look around and like, what are people drinking? Well, they seem to be drinking a lot of this LaCroix stuff. Uh, what if we throw some alcohol in it? <laughs> yeah, totally. 100%. Let's throw some neutral grain spirits in there. Ba-bam. Now it's alcoholic. <laughs> by the way, Jeff and I, prior to the podcast, I was uh, – because we uh, – by the way, we have a whole podcast on hard seltzer. Go look for it. It's excellent. It's amazing. It's one of the best things we've ever done. Uh, so uh, there you go. Um, we've done that. Uh, one of the things that I realized that we never really explored at that time was – what these things cost. And I have no idea because I actually don't, you know, I don't purchase them. So we went right. and investigated and they're not cheap. I mean, you, a six pack of, of hard uh, seltzer is about the cost of a six pack of a high quality craft uh, beer. Yeah. You, you found a White Claw $11 <laughs> six pack. Is that right? Yeah. White Claw six pack for 11 bucks uh, at my local Kroger branded store. Right. That uh, ain't cheap, man. I would no, much rather have a, a, a my my local uh, craft lager to use Matt's example as a comparison. But I absolutely think that you're 100 percent right in the fact that people want a way to consume alcohol that is uh, not offensive, not too many calories, uh, and uh, <laughs> I was gonna okay, I'll leave it those two. <laughs> and I th and I think that's what seltzer does, and I think that was exactly why they came about because. Uh, beverage companies are just in the process of getting, and if people are going to pay eleven dollars for a six pack, even better. Go ahead. And what are you going to say? And taste vaguely like the fruit <laughs> identified on the label. <laughs> I was going to have some 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 bad, you know, yeah, some sliding yeah. off of the flavor part. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Don't care that it smell that tastes like. Anyway, uh, yeah. So I, I, but I think you're right. I think, and I think it's no accident. People, uh, uh, companies look around and like, wow, Seltzer's really selling these days. People are drinking La Croix all, all over the place. Uh, so let's throw some alcohol in it and and make a lot of money. And at eleven dollars a six pack for something that's basically just neutral grain spirits and uh, chemical flavorings. I mean, <laughs> sign me up. Yeah, that's that's pure profit, baby. 
Like I'm not starting a craft brewery these days. I'm starting a new craft cider. And I think that's probably the next thing, right? Craft seltzers. Well, to go back to the uh, the point that you made uh, or the po- uh, a point that we started on earlier with our uh, announcement of Portland Brewing going uh, down, Fiefco uh, is is brewed in Rochester where Genesee is. So they make Jenny Cream and Seagram's Select or Seagram, some kind of Seagram's flavored right. malt beverage. And they're just yeah. moving all towards that because, you know, if you're making a single product uh, that you can sell across the country, uh, you streamline everything. It just makes it so much easier. Uh, if you're, you know, if you're trying to sell craft beer, you got to have 50 different brands and it's just like a big pain in the butt. You don't, you, you, you're selling way less of it. It's more expensive. Like the whole thing is just a nightmare. Just right. sell FMB and go. It's great. That's yeah. From a business perspective, why would you do anything else? But I'm going to I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. These flavored malt beverages have no dimension. They have no complexity. They have nothing. Right. So they're just a way to drink alcohol, and they will pass just like everything else. There'll be something else in the future for sure. Some other kind of flavored malt malt beverage uh but it's not something that's that's going to last because it never does because there's never enough it's not enough there there like there's no complexity there's nothing to get excited about it's just a way to drink so it's kind of like a substitute for you know your whatever uh 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 what's the super cheap uh, bush no is that the super cheap one sure okay one of those super cheap cheap uh uh light lager natty light Natty light. There you go. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, there's, there's always there's always a demand for this. These days, I do agree that there's sort of a more demand for something that's that's uh, uh, has fewer carbs and you know lower calorie and stuff, and and, and that ticks those boxes. Uh, All right, well, we should wrap this up. Uh, I do want to say that Matt can. Uh, concluded his email with a giant all bolds go or all caps go Hawkeyes uh, because we had been, we, we'd been given uh, Matt Van Wyke a little bit of hell about that and he included a picture of he and his buddies which reminded me how old we are because they look like babies Matt you're so young we're so old. we are yeah we are old uh, but no I can't support your go Hawkeyes boo go Badgers <laughs> <laughs> Although as Matt, Matt Van Wyke we had on, he's the the uh, one of the the guys from Ale Song and Eugene, also a Hawkeye uh, by birth. We both agreed that uh, you are in the land of the uh, the enemy, which is Illinois. We can all agree that Illinois sucks. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Wisconsin greater than Iowa greater than Illinois. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> by, the, by the transitive property. That's right. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, this was this was uh, fun, Jeff. Thank you for informing me all about a blender ice. I'm enjoying mine right now. I am too. Were... I went I went back, by the way, to the other one, and I'm I'm now pretty convinced that there is no Brettanomyces here now that it's warmed up. So just just to say, okay, yeah, yeah. I I wasn't ever sure, but I didn't dare contradict the the, <laughs> the all knowing, all seeing. Jeff Allworth. Okay. Uh, a few words going out. Please subscribe on Apple SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Don't forget to rate us. Five stars, please. That helps other listeners find the show. We'd love to hear from you. So please send your questions or comments uh, to Jeff at beervanaplog.com or on Twitter at beervanapod. Uh, thank you very much for the lactose person who submitted. It is disgraceful that we don't know who you are. Yeah, sorry about <laughs> that. All the fault of my beer podcasting partner. It uh, is. 
And that guy blogs at the Birvana blog and he tweets at, at Birvana. And the at this moment unscathed uh, <laughs> podcaster is uh, Patrick Emerson, and he can be found uh, tweeting at Beeronomics. All right. Uh, well, I still have. I've I actually finished the other one, um, by the way, before I started the the uh, the Lemka beer. But I have uh, the Lemka with me. I well, I I I finished the Lemka, and then I went back to the other one. So there we are. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I will cheers you, Jeff. So cheers. Cheers, Patrick. <laughs> All right. Stop.